I often think that y'all should be jealous of Chad and I because um, to hear your voices singing praises to our Savior um, is just one of the sweetest things, one of the richest blessings of being your pastor. Well, if you uh, remain standing and turn with me in the book of Exodus to Exodus chapter 26. We've printed the whole chapter of 26 for you, but don't worry, I'm not going to read all of it just now. I'm going to read the first six uh, verses. This is God's word. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. The five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain at the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to another with a clasp, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You may be seated. Would you pray with me one more time and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Father, come and make your word come alive. Don't let us have ears that are deaf to its resounding power. Don't don't let us have eyes that are, are dim to the glory of Jesus in the gospel. Open our ears, open our eyes, give our hearts the ability to believe what is said when it comes from your mouth and the discernment to ignore what is not of your word. Father, we pray for your spirit to tend to your word. For We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We... Um, we all, in one degree or another, in various ways, want to be associated with something glorious. It's a hunger um, of ours, even to just kind of brush up against somebody who has glory. You know, I have a, on my shelf in my office, I have a signed football and a signed basketball, signed by college coaches, and there's nothing special about them except that they bear the signatures of Phil Fulmer and Bruce Pearl. And I sat and I thought about it. It really is a strange thing to put something like that on your shelf. What significance does something like that have? It's, it's almost as if we believe that their glory somehow has rubbed off on that. And look who I have contacted. Look who I know. We hang pictures on our walls of famous people. We see someone famous and we want to get a selfie with them and then post it to Instagram. You maybe even just catch them sitting in the same restaurant together. To be in the presence of fame, I think for us, means that just for a moment, we are special too. 
It's the hope that their glory will somehow rub off on us and just being in their presence will make me somebody of value. But the sad thing, the thing that we don't want to readily admit in that economy, in that way the thing works, is that all of that glory that we want to rub up against is just a manufactured glory. The fame of the celebrity is fleeting. It's glory that's been given to that person by the masses, just recognizing that for maybe just their 15 minutes of fame, there's somebody special, but it's all been given. It's manufactured. It's not inherent. It's not real glory. It's just a cheap substitute. And as much as we long for it to satisfy our need to be somebody special, even rubbing up against that has its fleeting moments. They will lose their 15 minutes of fame and the crowd will move on. And if you ever get to that point of glory, you'll have to work harder and harder just to maintain it because it's not the real thing. You have to keep it. If you manufacture it, you have to keep it. You have to keep the crowd from moving on. You have to keep your voice being heard. Maybe it's even in your career. The boss will find somebody who does your job better than you and his favor will move to another. You will never be the star athlete, the star worker, the star whatever for very long. Someone will always come along who is better than you. But Israel, as God's chosen people, dearly beloved but small and treasured by him, had the privilege of having the true glory dwell in their midst. There were nations mightier than them. There were people who would have been more faithful than they had been. No military might, small nation having been ripped from the clutches of stronger and richer Egypt had God in their midst. And where we are in the book of Exodus is dropping into these elaborate descriptions of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the home that God had built in the midst of his people. Nobody significant except for the fact that the true glory dwelt there. He built himself a home amongst his people. We're here in the second week of our study on the tabernacle. If you're, if you're just visiting us, last week we looked at the courtyard and some of the furniture that was in the courtyard. The tabernacle, and one of the reasons it's so elaborately described, even in the six verses that we read, I call this the flyover territory of the book of Exodus. If you've read through the book of Exodus, this is usually where you start tuning out and the eyes gloss over and you've you get three or four chapters down, you have I no idea what's going on and what I've just read. So this is what's going on. One of the things that's going on, one of the reasons it's so elaborate is because the tabernacle, as the house of God, was meant to be seen, not just read about. It was given to Moses as a plan, a detailed plan. So I've included for you on the center of your worship God a two-dimensional plan, so you kind of get a sense of what we're what we're talking about as we talk about this. But it was visually stunning. 
Remember the context here. The story so far, Israel is in the wilderness at the bottom of Mount Sinai. God had rescued them from enslavement in Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai and had delivered his law in a verbal voice. They heard his voice speaking from Sinai and were so overwhelmed by the voice of the Lord that they asked Moses, don't let him talk to us anymore. He had, he had saved them and then given them the ways of his kingdom that they could walk in them. And now Moses has gone back up on the mountain. God's called him back up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and God during this time is giving him the blueprints, the plan for the tabernacle. It was a tent-like structure. That's what we read in those first six verses. It was the ceiling being described. It was a tent-like structure with a courtyard all around it. And the tabernacle's purpose, its sole purpose, was to be the place where God would dwell with his people. In fact, the end of the book of Exodus is, a, is just that accounting of the glory of God descending from Mount Sinai onto the tabernacle. He was with his people. This is this moment in Israel's history. This was, in fact, the culmination, the high point of the Exodus narrative. The building of the tabernacle is what we have been building up to in the book of Exodus until this point. In fact, this is where the narrative of the Old Testament has been building to up until this point. All the way back in uh, Genesis 3, Israel lost access to God's presence. He would no longer be with them because of their sin. And then God made this tremendous promise to the father Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be with you. I'll give you a land that you'll dwell in. I'll multiply your people. And the best part is I'll be there with them. There'll be a, a marriage between us and And me and them, we will be together and I'll be in their presence. And so the tabernacle description beginning in chapter 25 is the culmination. This is what we've been building up to all along in the history of redemption. From the very first plague, Moses announced, God through Moses announced to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they could serve me in the wilderness. We've been, we've been waiting for this. The Lord had not simply saved them from their enemies. That story would, would not satisfy the hunger for glory, would it? Just to be redeemed from the things that plague you. He had saved them into a relationship. He would dwell with them and be their God. And that makes us beg this question. Is God's presence the greatest gift of his salvation. I find this to be, I'm, honestly, this is the, I think about this is not the answer that I normally would give. No, I enjoy, you've heard me say it, I enjoy the benefits of Jesus much more than I enjoy him. It's just the fact of the matter, I love to glory in my forgiveness of sins, but I don't glory enough in the one who gives me forgiveness of sins. Do I enjoy God or just the things he can give? Is he just functioning as my sugar daddy? Or do I love having him near? Does his nearness, does it excite my heart? We don't have categories for having God near in this kind of way, the kind of way that Israel had. 
because here's one of the things the tabernacle clearly portrays. To have God come near is fearful. He is a God not to be trifled with, to be manipulated, to offer a few things here, and then he'll release his blessings there. He is a God to be feared. And here's how the tabernacle was constructed. We'd said last week that there were grades of access. It was graded courts coming near to God. The tabernacle itself was in the midst of a courtyard. In the midst of the courtyard was a two-roomed tent. First, size-wise, it wasn't all that impressive of a structure. Actually, the tabernacle tent itself would not have been much bigger than from the back wall to the beginning of the pulpit and not much wider than the center section of pews here. It's not that massive of a structure, but constructed in such a way that Israel would have known that they could not have been casual with this God and to have this God near. It was a two-room tent. The first room where God actually dwelt, where the Ark of the Covenant was, was uh, 15 by 15 by 15. 15 feet wide, 15 feet long, 15 feet tall. A perfect cube. That would have been the far room for where you're sitting the far room right here. You would have entered the tabernacle uh, tent itself through curtains that acted as a gate at the far end. The first room was the holy place. The second room, the most holy place. This room, the holy of holies here, the center where God dwelt. It was the least accessible of the rooms, only accessible by the high priests, and then only once a year. It was where the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant read, and we'll look at that last week, but I'll just say this, forget everything you've seen in Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's not like that. The outer room, the first room you would have entered, the holy place was basically twice the holy of holies, the most holy place. It, the first room that you would have entered, was 30 feet long by 15 feet wide by 15 feet In fact, the courtyard itself, almost all of the tabernacle structure was built off of the holy of holies, the most holy place where God dwelt. In fact, if you look down on the encampment of Israel, it would have looked like this. The most holy place accessed through the holy of holies with a courtyard and then Israel encamped all around it. Millions of Israelites camped around the tabernacle with God dwelling right in the middle. So what did it look like? What did this tent look like? Well, it looked like the royal encampment of a great king. And you need to remember, in the ancient Near East, a king was a military hero who was doing battle with his enemies and freeing their people. He wasn't just a a figurehead on a throne in some far-off place that came by and, and waved during parades. Where the king was present, he was to be feared because he was defeating his enemies and, and rescuing his people. And so this looked like a royal encampment of a great king. And the Ark of the Covenant in the 
holy of holies look like the footstool of a great king. Again, we'll see this next week. And each of the materials used in the tabernacle tent itself were incredibly valuable. It was tremendously glorious, but constructed in such a way that it was mobile. The king who had commanded creation in judgment in Egypt, who had brought all the forces of creation to liberate his people from the oppression of Egypt, frogs, water turning into Nile, locusts coming in, sun being blotted out, the king who holds all things together and moved creation to liberate his people was now dwelling in the midst. The king who through the wilderness wandering had said to the rocks, break forth into gushing water so that my people can be satisfied. The God who made manna fall in the dew of the sky because he governs all creation according to his power now was dwelling right in the midst of his people Israel. And wherever they went, he went to. He was literally dwelling in their midst. When the camp would move, the tabernacle was created to be a portable structure. And so the sides of the tabernacle were made of acacia wood. Acacia wood is an incredibly light but very durable hard wood that would have been found in the Sinai Peninsula. Boards 15 feet tall, about two feet wide. The boards would have been stuck in bases and then held together by a pole that went straight down the edge to unify them together. Those would then have been covered with gold. Additionally, because this is the room, this is the house of the great king of all creation. Additionally, all of the furniture in the tabernacle itself was covered with gold. When you walked through the curtain door into the holy place, you would have been overwhelmed with the majesty. I did a little math this week. A total of two tons of gold was used to construct the tabernacle. A little over two tons just of gold in addition to silver and bronze. The total amount in today's dollar of the gold that was used to construct the tabernacle, a little over $42 billion. A couple more billion just for the bronze and the silver. It was lavish. It was expensive. It was worthy of the king of all creation. The tent, the walls were then covered with a tent-like structure that we heard in Exodus 26, layers of material. The first layer would have been the ceiling of the tabernacle. When you walked in and looked up, you would have seen deep blue and scarlet gold. Gold cherubim embroidered into the ceiling. The warrior angels who guarded God's presence and fought his battles woven into the ceiling. Blue dye, again, lavish and expensive, only worthy of a great king. The blue dye that was used to create that kind of deep blue and the purple that was used to sew in the fabric of the tabernacle had to be gotten from one gland on one small snail. 
And it is estimated that it was worth more than gold in weight. Tens of thousands would have to be melt to just get enough dye to make one robe and the priest's garments and the tabernacle ceiling and the walls at the front that made a veil and the curtains at the back all in deep lavish blue because they are only only kingly figures get this kind of treatment over the ceiling then would have been another layer in the tent of goat's hair and then on top of that, ram skin that had been tied and then a fi- tanned and then a final layer over the tent structure of some type of marine animal. Maybe something in the porpoise family. Translated different ways, we're not sure. Essentially, the tent was waterproof. It was protected. All of these layers would have been staked into the ground at the corner to hold them tight and into the tabernacle Only the priests could come. It was beautiful, awe-inspiring. It was so visually appealing, it would have overwhelmed all of your senses. You would have wanted to drop down on your knees at the beauty of God's house. But it had to be this beautiful. It had to be this beautiful because this was the house of the king who in his glory is beautiful himself. Here's what's going on. Look, beauty satisfies, doesn't it? So we're captivated by the sunset or the cool weather hitting our face at night this time of year. When beauty hits our eyes and our souls, it satisfies us because we were made to be in the presence of a God who is not just glorious, but is himself beautiful. He dwells in a beautiful house because he is the beautiful creator and has made this world with his fingerprints all over it. The reason this world is so majestically beautiful and satisfies is because it is made by a God who is himself beautiful. This is just a dim reflection, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, whether in the face of a baby or a vast mountain, the most glorious, beautiful, awe-inspiring thing. It's just a bad reflection, just a mere reflection, dim reflection of the beauty of the glory of the creator of all the earth. This kind of beauty should create awe and fear. And I've thought so many times this week, I even said it to Chad, there's no way the Israelites would have entered the tabernacle without falling on their faces. There's no way they could not have worshipped the God who was present in such a magnificent structure. And then I thought, with my head just broken down, I remembered my own heart And what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, this is, in fact, what is very capable of doing all the time. We see the glory of God and his beauty in creation. And Paul says, this is what rebellious hearts do. It suppresses that truth. No, I don't want to see it. I'm blind to it. I want my own way. This is what sin does. It rebels against God and refuses to see his glory. The Israelites easily, with hard hearts, could have trifled around the glory of the tabernacle and never 
bowed their faces. And the first thing in order to appreciate what God is doing in the world, the first thing that is always required of us to have God in our midst, to have him in our presence, is that we have to come with this acknowledgement. I've not made you the center of my life. I have moved other things into the place where the tabernacle belongs. You should own the core of my being, but you don't, and I'm sorry. Forgive my sin, reorient my life. Make yourself the center. Steal for yourself the center of my affections. Open my eyes so I could see and no longer be hard-hearted. The other thing the tabernacle would have communicated is that this holy God was present, but he was present for a purpose. Not just communicating his glory, his grandeur, his beauty, all of those things, but also communicating his mission. He was there for a purpose. He wasn't just there for sentimental reasons. Not there to be the sugar daddy. Not there just to kind of meet their needs. He was there with a purpose. And his purpose was to recreate the sin-cursed world. He was present to undo everything that had been broken by the entrance of sin into it. I could go on and on and on about how the tabernacle was Eden recreated. In fact, six times God gives Moses an instruction. Do this, build it this way, and then God rests. It's the pattern of creation. God is recreating the sin-cursed world when he's present. That's what he's there to do. And when you would have walked into the tabernacle, you had have been made keenly aware. God's not just here. He's here to make things new. God dwells with his people, but this God, in order to experience his recreating power in your life, needs to be approached through blood. And so the tabernacle tent where God dwelt in his recreating power was within a courtyard and the first thing inside the gate of the courtyard we saw last week was an altar on which an animal had to be sacrificed blood had to be shed but then you walked into God's presence and you saw a building with furniture that was designed to communicate now you're with me And I'm going to make new things happen. The tabernacle was designed to walk Israel into a story. And the story went like this. Chapter 1, atonement through blood. Chapter 2, God gives you access to his presence. Chapter 3, where you enjoy fellowship with him. It's the pattern over the next few weeks. In fact, access through blood into his presence where you enjoy fellowship with him. And so the priests, as they entered the tabernacle, they were, this isn't God just being exclusive. Only the right people who have their act together can have access to me. The priests acted as representatives of Israel. They were, they were representing. All of Israel had access to the tabernacle only through the priests. And so the priests would walk into the tabernacle twice a day and tend to the furniture in the first room. On your right, when you walked into the first room through the blue set of curtains, immediately to your right, my left over here, immediately to your right, you would have seen a table. And on it, loaves of bread 
and wine. Immediately to your left, my right, immediately to your left, you would have seen a lampstand. And immediately in front of you, an altar of incense. And then a curtain separating you from the most holy place. On that, incense was burned. We're going to say, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to save the altar of incense for next week. Because it really is kind of an extension of the the bronze altar and then the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. So we're going to save that for next week when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant and the most holy place. This is what we're going to do today. I'm going to ask you to look to your left and then to your right. To your left was the lampstand. It was described in Exodus chapter 25, if you've got your Bibles. It was made out of pure gold, a talent in weight. A talent was 75 pounds, pure gold. We aren't told its dimensions here. Jewish tradition says it was about five feet high and about three and a half feet wide. More importantly is what it looked like. It looked like a tree, particularly an almond tree. It had a center shaft riding up the middle and out from that shaft on each side, three separate branches. At the end of each branch, a cup that held olive oil. That cup was in the shape of an almond flower and on that branch looked like the branches with leaves of an almond tree. Each branch with its cup had a wick, olive oil, olive oil because it's pure, it has a low smoking rate, doesn't smoke a lot, and so it burned and lit up Continually, The priests would have tended it continually all day long to make sure it was... It had a function. It had a functional place in the tabernacle. The tabernacle obviously doesn't have any windows. It's a tent structure with these heavy drapes and porpoise skins and ram's hide. You couldn't see out of it, so it needed a source of light. So the, the lampstand functioned as a source of light for the tabernacle. So the priests could tend to all the things in it, but it had a more important, symbolic importance. God could have made it out of it, he could have just stuck like a lantern in there, right? You know, maybe an old, maybe it just brought like an old, uh, you know, Coleman lamp and put it in there. But it didn't. He chose a tree, particularly a flowering tree. And we see what's going on here is God's saying, look, through blood, you have access to my presence, and look what you have access to now, the tree of life. The tree of life that was once in the Garden of Eden that Israel had banned, banned from, that served as a symbol that to be in God's presence was life-giving, bringing eternal life. And when they sin, they're cut off from it. Now, God now is bringing it back and giving them access in his presence is the kind of life we long for, life-giving, joy-producing, deep, sustaining life in the presence of God, the kind of life that recreates all of the areas of brokenness, all of the destitute parts of our lives. When God is present, he makes spring up with new fruit. This is what God does. He recreates the most broken places, and there stood in God's presence the tree of light, giving light. It's a miniature version of his kingdom. The other piece of furniture, now we've looked to our left, now look to your right in the tabernacle. 
It's described as the table of showbread. It's described in Exodus 25, the last part of the chapter. This table was about two cubits long. One cubit wide, about a cubit and a half tall. Basically the size of a sofa table. Three and a half feet long, foot and a half feet deep, two and a half feet tall, roughly. It too was made out of acacia wood and it was covered with pure gold with rings on the corners for gold gold poles to be inserted into so that when Israel moved, God moved with them and they carried the table with them. It's called frequently the bread of presence because it was to be eaten in the presence of God. And on that table also was wine, bread and wine. We go into the Lord's Supper here, what we won't because behind it is something much more significant than just foreshadowing what Jesus would give us. This is what's going on. It's a covenant meal. We'd seen this in the previous chapter, in chapter 24, when God called the elders and Aaron and Moses and Joshua up to the mountain. And then what did he do? He set a table with them so they could feast with him. Here's the pattern. Atonement through blood. Access to God and his new creation. Fellowship with him. He's setting a family meal. A meal is one, and particularly in the ancient Near East, one of the most intimate, inviting events. And God had invited his people, sin-cursed, broken people, come through his blood. Now, let me make a meal for you. Would you sit with me? Present he, present there. Broken sinners. You know the story of Israel. They are the most awful people he could have chosen. They are just like you and I. They abandon him at first chance. They grumble when things get hard. They disobey his rules. They are just like you and I. And this is what he says. Those are the people that I want at my table. Here's the progress of redemption. When God's people lived in tents, God dwelt in a tabernacle. After they settled into the promised land and had permanent homes, then God built a permanent home in the temple. But that's not where the story of God's presence ends. When Israel sinned, God withdrew his presence and sent them into exile. That's not where the story of God's presence ends. Jesus then descends. And he shows up announcing, God is here in the new temple in my body. Destroy this temple and in three days God will raise it up. And then he ascends into heaven. We've just celebrated the ascension. This is technically Ascension Sunday. This is the Sunday we celebrate. Jesus has gone into heaven. Now where's God's presence? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that you are You, belonging to Jesus Christ, you are God's temple. For the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that means two things. One, it means if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have tremendous value. You have become literally his new tabernacle. 
He has cleansed you with the blood of his son. And even though you continue, we continue to still sin. You stand before him, holy, blameless, and free from accusation. He has washed you and taken up residence in you. And so you don't have to seek the glory of fame. You are no longer just one of the crowd. You don't have to get the glory from another. When you run into your favorite celebrity, now this is what you can say. You want a selfie of me? The glory of God is dwelling here. He's decided to take up residence in me. He's made me beautiful. He's made this terribly broken sinner his home. It's the most amazing thing in all of creation. The second thing it means. Atonement, access to new creation, fellowship. That's the pattern of the tabernacle. That's the furniture it's there to design. God in you by his spirit means he has come to take up residence in you. To do a work of new creation. He's not going to leave you the same. You've been washed, forgiven, justified, stand righteous. Still a lot of brokenness in you. Guess what? He's going to come in and he's going to rearrange the furniture of your heart. He's like, oh, this doesn't go there. This goes over here. Let's get rid of this. This doesn't belong in my house anymore. He's setting up the furniture and making a new home to reflect his new character. You like God. That's what the Christian life, it's he's working the rest of it out. Working his new creation. Oh, this broken part of your life, I, I, need to, I need to deal with that. Thankfully, he doesn't like come home and he doesn't do like HGTV and just wreck everything inside and then completely dismantle it. He just comes in and says, let's just take care of this room right now. I need to... I need to make this room a little bit more like me. Let's make this. Okay, let's deal with the Oh, the basement. It's been pretty dark and damp for a long, long time. Let's, let's deal with that. It's rearranging the furniture of our heart. Because he lives here. Making it look a little bit more like his glory. And you see the face of Jesus with this promise. You are being changed from one degree of glory to another. He's taking up residence in you. And he's making us look a lot more like his glorious dwelling place that we are. Let's pray. Father, um, we would ask that you would help us to hope in this, that we are not alone But as your people, you are with us, walking us through dark times, changing us to be more like Jesus. We have come through his blood. And some of us, God, just so wrecked. We just need you to do this work in us for the very first time today. And so I pray that you would bring your presence in where it's been absent. Wash through the blood of Jesus. Take up your home and dwell there for all eternity. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.